Father, we ask that as we turn to Your Word now that You would reveal to us Your nature, Your heart toward us, that You would reveal Your wisdom and how thankful we are, Lord, for Your wisdom and what it has produced within our life, the safety that it has produced, the richness, the joy, the peace, Lord. We're so glad that You are a speaking God and that You have chosen to speak to us through Your Word. And Lord, we thank You for the joy and the privilege of being able to obey Your Word and then watch this incredible life unfold, one decision and one day at a time. Thank You for Your goodness to us. Would You speak to us through Your Word tonight and minister to us, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Book of Malachi. This evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We come now to the final book of the Old Testament. Chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So Malachi is not only the final book of uh, the New Testament in terms of its order related to the minor prophets, but it is also the final uh, book of the Bible in terms of chronology. Uh, it it uh, captures that. Is that me or is that somebody else? Oh, we got a little. Okay, hold on. All right. Okay, thanks, Dale. So it it is uh, the uh, final word of God in the Old Testament in in terms of chronological order as well. Malachi prophesied to the Jews about a hundred years after their return to the land, following the Babylonian captivity, just to give us a little bit of a feel for where it sits. Uh, when they returned to the land, they remained under the uh, rulership or under the, the dominion of the Medo-Persian Empire and Malachi prophesies long after uh, the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah and uh, it seems likely even sometime after the ministries of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah because in Malachi's prophecy here uh, the rebuilding of the temple has already been completed and not only has the temple been rebuilt, but the sacrifices and the observances associated with the rebuilding of the temple, all of those things have been reestablished. And the city of Jerusalem had been rebuilt uh, under uh, Nehemiah. But now sufficient time has occurred from the time of Nehemiah's uh, very, very strong uh, influence for righteousness among God's people. Enough time has occurred now until Malachi comes upon uh, uh, the scene that the influence of uh, Nehemiah and others has begun to wane. Their spiritual influence upon the people and a spiritual apostasy has set uh, in uh, among uh, the people. We don't know the exact date for his ministry, but somewhere in about 450 to 400 B.C. would seem to be about the approximate date. And the reason that that's important to understand is that because following God's prophecy through Malachi, 
God would not uh, publicly prophesy through a prophet to the Jewish people uh, uh, to the world for the next 400 years. God would not speak through a prophet in human history until John the Baptist breaks that prophetic silence at the beginning of his ministry when he cried out in preparation for the unveiling of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, whatever God would speak to His people before entering into 400 years of silence uh, has to be pretty important to Him and important to us. And of course it is. And it was important for them to hear what it, they, He had to say to them uh, before the 400 years of silence. And the message is a contemporary one for us today. It is absolutely timeless and we need it as much today as ever they did. The form of Malachi's uh, prophecies uh, are, is unique in terms of the form that they take. Rather than being like Jeremiah and Isaiah, where it's kind of a very straightforward prophecy, thus says the Lord, they make direct proclamations from God, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here, uh, Malachi uh, uses a dialectical method. And what he does is he poses, he makes a statement to the people. He then poses, on behalf of God, he then poses a question to them related to that statement. He poses that question to them and then he answers that question on behalf of God. It's a very, very effective way to teach. If, I, if you come up and you just, uh, and there's nothing wrong with it if God calls us to do it that way, but if you come up and you do uh, all of the asking and then you do all of the supplying related to uh, the answers in terms of the things uh, of God, we never really have to grapple with the question. And so when you pose a question God does to the people, and then He lets them grapple with that to try and come up with their own answer uh, to the question that He poses, by means of grappling with the question, they then will internalize the question. And the answer to that question much more deeply than if He had given them an open book test. And it was just, everything was just given to them uh, effortlessly. So it's a very, very effective form uh, of teaching. We tend to remember uh, the answers to questions that uh, we come up with on our own, that we've been forced to wrestle with uh, uh, at least a little bit, and God allows that to happen here. Malachi's message to uh, the children of Israel at that point, they are unraveling spiritually at this point in, in their history. God had given them these great promises through Zechariah, through other prophets, uh, concerning the coming of Messiah, Jesus in His first coming and in His uh, second coming. And, uh, but these promises weren't fulfilled immediately. And because the promises weren't fulfilled immediately, they started to drift into kind of a spiritual uh, apathy. They fell asleep spiritually, and they just started to go with the flow of the world around them. They didn't allow those promises to impact the daily uh, of, of their life. It looked like God wasn't going to keep those promises. So they lost their zeal for God. Uh, they lost their zeal for their service to God. 
in the same way that many uh, Christians oftentimes do, where you can see and many, many Christians through the years, I've seen them very excited about the Lord at the beginning of their Christian walk, very excited about the possibility and the, the, uh, um, uh, the potential of the Lord's return in their lifetime, but certainly the certainty of the fact that Jesus is going to return. All of this is, uh, produces an excitement within their life. And, um, and then uh, uh, weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and years turn into decades. And pretty soon all of that begins to wane, and then that person then finds themselves back kind of in the world, a sanctified version of it. But in terms of any zeal for God, it's a very apathetic Christian life that they, uh, that they live. And this goes on. Uh, all, all of the time when there's this perceived delay on the part of God to uh, fulfilling His promises within, within our lives. The Apostle Paul warned about this spiritual apathy and lethargy in our lives as Christians. Romans chapter 13, uh, verse 11. And, and, and do this, knowing the time. What time is it? Uh, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Yes, you haven't seen the rapture of the church yet, but it's nearer than it's ever been before. That's how you need to, to view uh, these apparent delays by God. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, and therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The book of Malachi is very much like the book of James in the New Testament. Uh, the book of James is very, very direct. It is wonderful in that way. Malachi is very, very direct uh, in what he communicates. God is very direct through Malachi in, in communicating to his people. And he really picks up a megaphone here uh, to speak to the children of Israel, but it takes a megaphone to wake, uh, uh, wake up uh, Christians that have fallen asleep spiritually and completely unaware of the fact that they have fallen asleep. So we'll see that spiritually they, they are completely, almost completely devoid of any respect for God, any reverence for God, any fear uh, toward God. And the absence is to such a degree that it's completely appalling and then socially, they are disregarding his institutions. They are disregarding his institution of marriage and the importance of the family unit. Widespread disregard for God's commandments. And then materially, they are now begun to worship the way that the world does. The material things to trust in money rather than in God and all of it revealed in their failure to give to God as God had uh, commanded. And so this, their casual disobedience to uh, the law of Moses, to the Mosaic covenant, a covenant in which God blessed faithfulness and He cursed disobedience and He did so eventually with exile in their history. And all that, they're repeating all of it. They're headed to disaster and Malachi comes on the scene and he warns them to repent 
and, and to take the worship of God, to take obedience to His commandments uh, seriously. And so he begins all of this in verse 2. God says to the nation of Israel, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then he poses the question that he knows that they're thinking on the basis of his statement. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And then he answers the question, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? And yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals uh, of the wilderness. And even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return uh, to our land and build the desolate places, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see it, and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. We will make these uh, five verses this evening our meditation from uh, Malachi and our introduction to the Lord's Supper. And so, here we have the pattern uh, that, that the entire letter takes, the statement about their low spiritual condition, the question that he knows is on their heart, and then the answer to their question. And the Lord uh, begins this entire uh, series of prophecies to them by expressing His love uh, uh, for Israel, uh, not to the Philistines, but He expresses His love for Israel uh, to the children of Israel. And God then anticipated that they would doubt that. They would challenge the truthfulness of God's declaration to them of His love. And so he posed the question he knew was in on their hearts. And sometimes we think because something is on our heart and it doesn't come out of our mouth that God can't see it or it doesn't count. But he sees everything that comes out, hears everything that comes out of our mouth and knows what's in our heart as well. And what they challenged God on was they challenged Him concerning the fact of His love for them. And the key phrase there is, in what way? In other words, they, God says, I know the question you want to pose to me when I declare my love for you, to you, and the question that's on your heart and you want to pose to me is, I can't see any evidence for your love for me in my life. Now that is a very, very bold challenge to the truthfulness of God's Word and His nature. It comes just this side of calling God a liar in declaring His love uh, to them. God is more than patient with them. He's been more than patient with me with questions that have been in my heart as well at times and difficult. So essentially, they're asking Him to prove it, to prove His love. Now, the three proofs that God supplied to them of His love are interesting. In uh, the end of verse 2 and end of verse 3, first and foremost, He said, My love is evidenced uh, to you by my election of Jacob, from whom the nation of Israel came, my election of Jacob over Esau, 
who produced the Edomites in, in human history. And of course, Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And so his love was manifested to Israel in his choice of the younger son, the younger twin, Jacob, and of whom they, the children of Israel, were descendants over the older twin, Esau, as the one through whom he would continue to fill the promises that he made to, uh, to Abraham, including being a part of the bloodline for Messiah. When he says to the children of Israel, and they want proof for his love, he doesn't take them back to Solomon. He doesn't take them back to David. He doesn't take them back to that era of things and say, look at how powerful I made you. Uh, look at how wealthy all of you were and the nation of Israel was under David and under Solomon. He doesn't go back there as the chief evidence of his love. He goes all the way back to Jacob and he reminds Jacob of the covenant. It, you are, my love is manifest to you supremely and that my covenant is coming into human history and being fulfilled uh, in you and through you. That was the true uh, riches over any kind of, of material thing. He was, they were the recipient of that, that, great, that great covenant and that great bloodline. And here it's important to realize that when God mentions Jacob and Esau here, He's not speaking supremely of the two men. He's speaking supremely of the two nations that would come from their bloodline, Israel and Edom. You notice in verses 4 and 5, or you can notice later, the, the plural pronouns that are used in, in those verses driving home that point. He's not talking to an individual. He's talking to supremely, but to the descendants of that individual. And so when God said, Jacob or Israel I have loved, but Esau, Edom, I have hated, this is not personal. Uh, but the words loved and hated should be viewed as covenant language. That it carries the idea of Jacob I have chosen and Esau I have not chosen. And that compared to his love for Jacob, the divine attitude toward Esau was hatred. Now, of course, by this time in Israel's history, the Edomites, though they were related to Israel by blood, they had a long history of being uh, perennial enemies of the children of Israel. They rejoiced every time a disaster fell uh, upon uh, Israel. They had no love for the nation uh, of Israel at all. The second proof that God gave them of His love at the end of verse 3 is that His love was manifested in the fact that the land allotted to the children of Israel, Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, was a land that was vastly superior to the land that was allotted to uh, the Edomites by comparison. The land of the Edomites by comparison was a very, very harsh land. He, he describes it there in verse 3 as a land for the jackals in the wilderness. That's very different from a land flowing with milk and honey. And then third is an expression of His love for them. God's love for them was manifested in His preservation of Israel through their Babylonian captivity 
and then in bringing them back into uh, the land. When he didn't do that same thing for the Edomites, and he didn't do it for good reason. Both Israel, Judah, and Edom, they were defeated by the Babylonians. Uh, Both nations, both kingdoms were taken into captivity uh, to uh, Babylon. They each received the judgment that they deserved from God. And, uh, but Edom would never be rebuilt by the Edomites, uh, they, though they had a determination to do so. Here you have the boasting of Edom in verse 4. We're going to go out of this Babylonian captivity. We're going back to our land, and we are going to build it. And God doesn't let them do that as He allowed the children of Israel to rebuild the land of Israel. And, and after their defeat by the Babylonians, uh, the kingdom state of Edom, it ceased formally to exist. and no longer had a homeland. Uh, the, uh, the, the bloodline of the Edomites was absorbed by the surrounding nations. You might have uh, recognized or think about it even here uh, this evening. How many Edomites have you run into in the course of your life? They don't exist. They disappeared in human history. And yet, the, the Jews deserve to, just as equally. And yet, they have continued through all of these, uh, through all of these years. And why did God do one thing for Israel and another thing for Edom? Was it because the Jews were any better than the Edomites? No. Because by the time God judged Judah by way of the Babylonians, uh, the Babylonians, the children of Israel, Israel were out-sinning, out-wicketing uh, even the Gentile nations around them, even the Edomites uh, uh, around uh, them. The Jews were as guilty of sin as the Edomites, and in fact, more guilty because they sinned against greater light, sinned against the Word uh, of God in a relationship with God. Now, God's preservation of them was not based upon any good in them, but solely because of His covenant love uh, uh, for them. And when the children of Israel, as God said they would witness in verse 5, when in the future from the time of the prophecy of Malachi, they would witness the failure of the kingdom of Edom to reestablish itself going forward and God's continued blessings upon the land of Israel, they would realize the truth of what God had spoken of here, and that is of His unique love for them. And that's the proof that he gives to them, the three proofs, as evidences for his love. Now the application, I think, for our lives, and, and, and for them really to have doubted God's love for them, God's covenant love for them, was really just crazy. I mean, they just had to completely dismiss their entire history to doubt the love of God in their life. Any Christian has to completely doubt our entire history and, uh, uh, with God to come to a place where we are doubting the love of God within our lives. You think about all of the evidences of love that they had experienced, the love of God. He had birthed them into a nation uh, through Abraham. He had redeemed them from uh, Egypt. He had delivered them and redeemed them uh, 
from the land of Egypt, giving them the law of Moses. He supplied their needs for 40 years while they wandered through the wilderness. All of that wandering caused by their own sin. He gave them a homeland in Canaan. He kept all of His promises to them. He preserved the land of Israel for them to follow uh, into in their ba- after their Babylonian exile. He moved pagan kings, specifically King Cyrus, to give the decree to allow them to return back into their land in terms of their very recent uh, history. He graced them with the privilege of rebuilding their temple. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them and judge after judge after judge to deliver them through their history. And on and on and on you could go to speak of the innumerable evidences of God's love toward them as a people covering a period of a thousand uh, years. So many evidences of His love He had poured out on them. And so when they end up doubting the love of God in the face of of God's long history of loving faithfulness toward them, uh, and and that's exactly what they did. And so we ask ourselves, how in the world did this happen? How does that happen? in a person? How does that happen in a people? And how does such a thing happen in the life of a Christian? And I think a couple of things that probably played into it. First of all, it happens when God doesn't do things the way, the way that we think He should do them in our life. And when He doesn't do things the way that I think He should do them, I can begin to now doubt His love Uh, as a result uh, of that. So here they are. They've been back in the land of Israel for a hundred years following the Babylonian captivity. They rebuilt the temple and the city of Jerusalem. God had called them to rebuild. And yet, life in the land of Israel remained very, very hard. It was, it was difficult. It was, not, it was not a great people and a victorious people like God had prophesied would one day characterize them. And so they were thinking, where is the promise of all of this abundant plenty? Where is the uh, promise uh, of this kind of influence and power that the prophets had, had prophesied? And when those kind of seasons come into our lives where we have the promises of God, but they haven't yet been fulfilled in in our lives. And and we're in a difficult place. And and, and life isn't hard for us. Then we can really, those kind of circumstances can really begin to challenge our belief that God loves us. But it is important to realize that nowhere in the Bible, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, are we promised a trouble-free life as Christians or a trial-free life as, as Christians. And that is not an expectation that I'm ever free to bring to my Christian life. And yet, there's a tendency on our part to do that. And if I bring that idea that once I become a Christian, the Christian life is going to be trial-free, relatively difficulty-free, then, then I am setting myself up for a great disappointment. I put a great stumbling block before myself. And that disappointment doesn't have its root in some kind of a failure on the part of God's love, but it has its roots in an unbiblical expectation of the Christian uh, life. 
and an unbiblical expectation of Christianity that I brought into my Christian life. And so you look in the Bible. You look at Abraham. We look at Joseph. We look at Moses, Joshua, Elijah, King David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, John the Baptist. Eleven of the twelve apostles died a martyr's death. And last but not least, you look at Jesus Himself who declared, Verily, verily, I say unto you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who sent him. Elsewhere, speaking to this very same thing, Jesus said, These things I've spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. And the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then speaking of uh, Paul and Barnabas on their uh, first missionary journey in, in Acts chapter 14, uh, they decided that they were going to uh, preach the gospel after they had preached it in Derby, made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. They strengthened the souls uh, of the disciples. Uh, Acts chapter 14 tells us, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying to them, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. And so, I, I not only recognize the temptation in my own heart, but I have witnessed many, many Christians through the years who have been deeply stumbled in their walk with God because they concluded that some difficulty or some tribulation in their life represents a failure of God's love when it is a product of bringing an incorrect expectation to the Christian uh, life. And so we ask ourselves here tonight, if any of us are in that place, doubting the love of God because of the way that He is doing things in, in our lives, not in violation of His Word, but in violation of my expectation that I am placing on Him. They were guilty of this very thing, and it caused them to doubt uh, God's love and to miss all of the other manifestations of God's love uh, in, in their uh, life. And then similarly, the second cause for uh, doubting uh, the love of God happens when God doesn't do things when I think He should. And why didn't God honor all of their repentance, all of their hard work, all of the rebuilding of the temple that He had called them to do, the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, and send the Messiah uh, right away? But God had never promised them uh, that He would send the Messiah right away. Messiah was going to come in His own perfect timing, and just as God will keep all of His promises to us in His own timing, and that timing will be exactly perfect. So they brought that expectation uh, to their relationship with God. And a third reason for doubting the love of God, and this is very clear in the passage, is when I forget all of the past expressions of God's love in my life. And I become blind to all of His blessings through the years. All of His blessings that are in my life in the present tense. And, and I forget all of them uh, because I presently am judging God's love for me based upon being fixated on some certain something that I want or I want Him to do. 
and, and uh, I think God should do it, and we become so conscious of what we don't have that we forget all about the blessings that are in our lives as expressions of His love. I'll give a silly illustration. But let's say uh, we're in our our home or in an apartment or something like that, and we want a new couch. And God isn't providing this new couch for me. And we begin to obsess over this new couch that we want. And after all, we've worked hard and we've been a good Christian and all of these things. And then pretty soon, our whole life is about that couch. It comes to dominate the the relationship. And and then we become one-dimensional in our view of God's love We lose sight of the fact that we have a home to live in. We have a roof over our head. There's hot and cold running water in the house. Uh, There's indoor plumbing. All of the blessings that are all around. and And I'm looking at some comparatively small thing to judge His love uh, in, in my life uh, over. And it's very, very easy to do that. And it may not be a material expectation. It can be uh, for a husband or for a wife or for God to open something up in terms of an occupation or whatever uh, it, it, it might be. And this is, uh, this is one of the very, very methods that Satan used in his temptation uh, of Eve in the Garden of Eden. He put her focus on the only thing in the garden she couldn't have. She had so much. They could eat of every tree (laughs) in a garden. And he gets her to fixate on the one thing she doesn't have And she can't have. And then he uses that, not only to put her focus there, but then he proceeded to then attempt to cast doubt on the goodness of God and the love of God toward her in denying her the freedom to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, And he, Satan, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And then in Genesis chapter 1, uh, or, or uh, in the, the same chapter, verses 4 and 5, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will uh, not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. God is, God is denying you. He's not being good to you. Uh, he's being unloving toward you in denying you this one thing uh, in, in your uh, life. And of course, it was very effective and it led to the single worst decision in human history and the fall of Adam and Eve. And yet today, for the child of God to doubt the love of God uh, sets us up to make all kinds of wrong decisions in our lives as well. Our whole focus is on that one thing that I don't have, and that becomes the measure of God's love. There's a solution to that, and it's encapsulated in a hymn. And the hymn is called, Count Your Blessings. Let me just sing for you just a little bit. I can tell you're in need of a song. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. 
Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy? You are called to bear. Count your many blessings. Every doubt will fly. And you will keep singing as the days go by. And then the song goes on uh, from there. And all we need to do is to turn to a passage like Ephesians chapter 1 in the Bible that lists all of these blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Spiritual blessings that are are priceless and they're listed one after another uh, after another. And all of these blessings that are always ours, they always lie beyond the reach of of life's circumstances and and the condition uh, of the world. And each of us as God's children have, I think, ample uh, reason in the amazing grace and goodness of God to never ever doubt His love for a moment. But sometimes it takes a passage like this in Malachi uh, to remind us. One of the reasons that I decided to camp here on this, is it, is it without heading through and finishing the chapter, um, as we normally would do on a Sunday night, is, uh, the, uh, is the fact that of all of the things, and this fascinates me, of all of the things that are wrong among the children of Israel at this time, uh, they, they're offering a, a blemished, marred sacrifices to him. Imagine the disrespect, uh, the blatant disregard for their marriage vows. They're robbing him uh, of, of what is uh, due him in terms of, of their giving and all. But he doesn't start with any of those things. All of those things come after him now addressing of all of those failings, the first thing he addresses is they're, uh, they're doubting His love for them. And I think that a case can be made related to the book of Malachi that all of the other sins uh, flowed out of this doubting of the love of, of God. Because once I begin to doubt the love of God for me, what happens is I then lose the single inexhaustible motivation in my Christian life for loving and obeying God, and that is namely to love Him and obey Him in response to His love for me. And the inevitable result, if I doubt His love for me, and then my obedience to Him is no longer in response to love, then any other motivation is going to be so much lower that it's ultimately going to lead uh, into a relationship with Him that is apathetic and, and uh, far below what God I- intends uh, for us. And so the uh, Christian life is intended to be lived as a response. We love and obey God in response to the love He's first shown us. First John 4, 19. Uh, we love Him because He first loved us. The Apostle Paul, he recognized that Christianity is to be lived in response to the love of God. You look at how many letters he he follows the same model. Ephesians, uh, Colossians, Romans, others. Take the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are all about what God has done for us in His love. And then only chapters 4 through 6 then deal with this is the proper response to the love that God has shown you. 
It, it, you would think it would flip around the way that it would within our culture, but He doesn't. He does the same thing in the book of Colossians. All that God has done for you, first two chapters, this is the worthy response, the final two chapters. In the book of Romans, he takes 11 chapters and talks about all that God has done for us. And then from chapter 12 to the end of the book, this is the proper response to it. And the reinforcing of, of the fact that if I lose a motivation in my life to obey God and walk with Him, and I lose the motivation of love, then something catastrophic has been lost in my life, and and it, it will end up doing no good. No good in my life. It, it ends up further down the line uh, being a great problem. And so he has uh, th uh, this response because a response to God's love and His grace and His goodness as the motivation for our obedience to His commandments and, and as the foundation for our love for Him as I mentioned, is an inexhaustible motivation because He has loved us and blessed us more than we could ever love Him back. We'll never say, boy, okay, <laughs> I'm not giving you any more love, Lord, or any more worship until I get a little more love from you. And we're not even on the same universe related to the, the, the sheer amount of it. And to live the Christian life is a response to God's love that He's first shown us will always produce the highest degree of love and respect for God, the highest degree of obedience to His commands, because the hardest thing to sin against is love. The hardest thing to sin against is love. And so here you have them going through the motions on the basis of something. They're doing it for some reason in Malachi. Some motivation... But that motivation is not in response to the goodness and the love that has shown me. So they're doing it either out of a self-discipline, uh, they're doing it out of a, a legalism, or they're doing it because they want to be thought well of in uh, spiritual circles in the city of, uh, of, of Jerusalem. Uh, but no legalism or traditions or fear uh, it will ever excel love as a motivation for intimacy in a relationship and obedience in, in that relationship, and especially the love that sh someone has shown to us first. I remember uh, dating my wife, Karen, and uh, she made a statement one time. I know exactly, I can picture it right where we were. And she made the statement that the thing that caused her to obey her mother uh, in, in her youth was when she, when she had unbelievable freedom, uh, too much freedom, unbelievable freedom given to her and her sister. And she could have uh, gone and done whatever she wanted, chose to live a life that would have broken her mother's heart. And the reason that she didn't go there was because of her love for her mother, because of her mother's love for her. She didn't want to break her heart by living a life that would be way below the love that had been shown to her. And that's not law at work in a relationship with God. That's the power of personal relationship, which is what Christianity is all about. You go back to Malachi here, the most powerful deterrent to sickly offerings 
to disregarding marriage vows, to robbing God, the most powerful deterrent is not laws and ordinances. They were practicing all of that. But the greatest deterrence is a relationship with God that is meaningful to us and is valuable to us that is built upon God's love. And no Christian, I think, who possesses a meaningful and valuable relationship with God, who loves God, would ever be able to settle into the place that these people ultimately uh, settled uh, into. It is the, the, the greatest sanctifying influence uh, by the Holy Spirit in, in the body uh, of, of Christ. And what's the single great greatest demonstration of God's love for us in human history. It is the love God has shown us in sending His only begotten Son into the world to die on the cross for our sins and to be a propitiation, a satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the single great demonstration of His love. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. And that while we are, we're still sinners, Christ died for us. The demonstrates is in the present tense. He doesn't say, and God demonstrated way back then. Because He says it demonstrates because it demonstrated the love of God all the way back at the time that Jesus died on the cross for us. But it demonstrates the same thing. It's timeless. It demonstrates the love of God in 2000. Uh, 22 as powerfully and and importantly uh, today as ever it did. And how do I know that God loves me? Calvary. Jesus nailed to that cross. And so to Israel, God's answer to how do I know that you love me? Uh, How do I know uh, that you love me? Uh, And God answers, you're alive. And when the Christian says to God, how do I know that you love me? He says, you're saved. And that's the answer that he gives. And if God didn't do one more thing for us beyond that, it would be enough as an expression of his love. But he always does way more than that. But that's the pinnacle. And what a danger it is to take some comparatively minor difficulty in my life, no matter how big the difficulty might be, and to determine that what God uh, is or isn't doing concerning that difficulty in my life is the single great evidence of whether He loves me or not, and to elevate that above the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross as an evidence of His love. And that's exactly what the children of Israel were doing in their own way at that time. And it happens all of the time even today. And so this evening as we prepare to take the symbols of Jesus' body and and of His blood, the price paid for my salvation, for your salvation, we want to ask ourselves uh, as uh, needed as we consider the catastrophic loss that doubting God's love in our lives uh, produces And the fact that God started here in this place of addressing the issues and the most important issue in which they were failing in 
is their failure to acknowledge the greatness of His love. And so we ask ourselves in the privacy of our own heart, and I may be reaching out to leaving the 99 this evening to reach out to the one, but I'm willing to do it. Am I confident in God's love for me? And if I'm not confident in God's love for me, typically it means I've either failed to make Calvary the evidence of His love for me in my, my Christian life, or I did so at one time and I no longer uh, do so. Something else is crowded in. My own litmus test for Him to prove His love. And what we want to do if we're in that place tonight is to return to this as the great expression. And the timeless and the uh, in, in, uninterruptible expression of His love uh, toward us, uh, the cross. The second thing to ask ourselves, am I confident in His love, but I'm not living a Christian life that's an appropriate response to that love? Jesus, you remember, He said, it's one, thing to, it's one thing to be confident in His love, but if I stop there and I fail to take that into then expressing my love to Him in obedience, I've fallen well short of what uh, a, a major part of what the cross is supposed to accomplish within our lives. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And to recommit and say, Lord, I am living a life, if that's the case, way below uh, uh, what it is that you've done for me. Uh, the love that I show you on a daily basis or a weekly basis in comparison to the love that you show me all day, every day, embarrasses me to think about that. And if, that, if that's our condition, then as we partake of the elements tonight, to repent of that. Say, I want to commit back to a life that is a, an appropriate response to the sacrifice that was made for the forgiveness of my sins. And then number three, is God's love for me the single great motivation for living a Christian life that honors the Lord? Or if I allowed other motivations to come into my life, I'm obeying Him because I want people to think well of me, or I'm obeying Him out of legalism, uh, or I'm obeying Him out of, out of duty, or just trying to keep up appearances before other people, uh, or in my own pride, I, again, just wanting people to think uh, well uh, of me. All of those motivations will fail us. And they will ultimately lead us into an apathy in our relationship with God and just this heartless routine. And so just to say to God tonight, Lord, I want Your love for me to be the sole motivation for my obedience to You. And, and maybe in one or two of our hearts, it's become very, very complicated, that motivation is. And to just to return to that simplicity and say, Lord, would You help me do that? And then finally, is my relationship with God meaningful to me? Is it the most valuable part of my life? And if not, then to um, repent of that spiritual apathy and to return to that kind of relationship uh, with the Lord once again and to return to that uh, first love. 
And it's easy to move along. I mean, here these people are a hundred years after all of these other things that have happened. And the further we get away from revivals in human history, there can become this, this thing and, and, and we drift off on ourselves even individually. And uh, if I were to stop and just think about it and think about, is my relationship with God still meaningful? Is it a vital part of my life? And is it the most meaningful uh, part uh, of my life? And if not, then to turn back to the Lord with that, that kind of a heart. And so, some meditations. Certainly not a scolding tonight. I'm not accusing anyone of anything. But to see how um, these things have occurred within these people, we are, have a tendency toward the same things. And the importance of being confident, in His love, and then allowing what the, Christian, the only Christian life that can flow out of that confidence to then be our experience as Christians. And so if the worship team would come forward and the men will come forward, we will serve the Lord's Supper. And uh, there'll be a little kind of package that is there. There'll be the bread and the cup. You'll have to take a couple of wrappers off. And uh, to get to everything, we will partake of the bread first and uh, pray together. And then uh, the worship team will lead us in worship. Then we'll partake uh, of, of the cup. And so uh, let's turn our heart to the Lord now as we consider these great symbols of God's love, the symbols of our Savior here tonight, and partake of them in our lives in remembrance of Him. Father, we thank You tonight for Your love. Such a mystery. So inexhaustible. We explore it, I'm sure, just one inch into a depth that is infinite. But we're thankful for what we know and what we see. Thank You for being a God that doesn't just talk about love, but You demonstrated it, and You demonstrate it. And we thank You, Lord, for this supreme, inexhaustible evidence of Your love in human history and the giving of Your Son for the forgiveness of our sins that we might know You and walk with You. And Lord, we thank You for all of the other blessings that are ours, that lie beyond the reach of the world from ever touching or influencing any way that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank You for all of the expressions of Your love in our lives. And we thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Father, we thank You tonight that in saving us, you have not only provided us with the forgiveness of sins, but that You made a way for us to have a relationship with You. That there was a relationship to be found in all of this in a relationship with You. We're humbled by that. We're humbled by Your love. And Lord, we see Your wisdom and how You have established this relationship for it to be stable, for it to be anchored, and for it to be true based upon Your truth and based upon 
Your love based upon Your grace. And then, Lord, at the same time, providing us with the very highest motivation for staying true and close and intimate and growing in this relationship, a response to Your love. Only You, our Maker, could come up with something like this. Only You could understand us in a way that would make Your love the response to our love to You. And so we thank You, Lord, so much for this relationship that we enjoy tonight. And not only the privilege of being loved by You, though that is, dwarfs all else, but for the, for the privilege of being able to love someone like You. Again, thank You for this relationship. We thank You in the name of the One who made it possible. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's partake together.